Joshua is the little guy on the trumpet, and Elisha is the little guy on the piano. And they were extremely excited, and the song that they want to share this morning is Amazing Grace. Um, pray for them, and um, as they go through it, Elisha is changing the music on the fly and changing keys. So he's doing something really complex while trying to play for his little brother as accompaniment. So, but he's excited, right? My name is Kabede. I'm from Ethiopia. I'm reading the scripture for this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open to 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29. In your pew Bible is page 390. 1 Kings 4, 29. <clears throat> and God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. 
May God add these blessings to the reading of his word. Good morning. Can you hear me? For uh, those who have been coming to the church this year, you might remember and are following along, we're going through the Bible together as a church. We're reading through the Bible together. And the sermons have been based every Saturday on the previous readings of that week. And uh, this week, we were able to read a little bit about the life of a king called, a king called, okay, a king called Solomon. And so today, we want to dive into that story of the wise King Solomon, and we want to ask, why was he so wise, and why was that important? So I'm going to ask you again, we're going to say a, a prayer to begin the Lord's word through me. We're going to ask that God bless us. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to ask a blessing over the spoken word that you would be able to use your spirit to make it relevant and help someone in their journey towards you today. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I'm not sure if any of you have had this great experience, but one day when I was about five or seven years of age, my parents, who were doing very well off at that time in California, took me to the toy store one day, and my dad had just gotten paid, and he worked construction, so they used to pay him cash, and so he used to come after payday, and he would just come with his big wad of money from his paycheck of the construction job he did. And he was so proud. You know, my father came from nothing. He didn't have any toys, you know. He barely had any clothes. So they kind of spoiled me a little bit. And I remember the day that we walked into that toy store and my father told me these words, I'll never forget. You can get whatever you want in here. Have you guys ever had that experience? And so imagine this little kid running and looking at all the toys. Which one do I want the most? And it reminded me of a, of a show, a contest that they had a couple years ago that they would give people a basket or they would give them, a, what's it called when you go to the grocery store, a, a, a cart, and they said, you have five minutes to fill the cart up and everything that you put in there will be paid. It's yours. And you see people running up and down the aisle. The first thing they go for is always that big screen TV, right? They, they throw like four of those in there and, and so forth. And you know, it's, it's interesting when you get an opportunity to get whatever you want. Um, Disney was a major part of a lot of kids' lives growing up. And there was a, a, famous, a famous movie that they're remaking called Aladdin. Have you guys heard of that before? And the idea that there's this poor, poor boy who ends up in the desert and he finds a little, a little genie bottle. And he, you know, he rubs it and out comes out this blue Pretty scary looking you know, genie for little kids, I think. And he says, you can have three wishes. Whatever you want, you can have. What would you choose if you were given three choices to get whatever you want in the world? What are some of the things? Okay. <laughs> He's like, that's the head elder. He says he wants Jesus come back. But, but in reality, what would most people choose? What would most people choose? Okay, I hope most people would choose eternal life. It wasn't what this character chose. He chose to become a, a king. He chose money. He chose possessions. He chose, he chose wealth. Now, this was just a, a made-up story. 
But the Bible actually has a story where God himself came to a man and he was so pleased with this man called King Solomon that he said, I will not give you three, but I'll at least give you one request. Whatever you want, I will grant it to, to you. Wow, isn't that special? And so Solomon, King Solomon, could have chosen the most beautiful wife in the empire. Give me the most beautiful wife. He could have chosen to have the biggest army. He could have chosen to be the most famous. Maybe some people would pick that today. Maybe even be the most famous person in the world. He could have chosen wealth. He could have chosen a lot of things. But what made Solomon so interesting, that when he got the one choice to get anything in the world from God, he chose so differently that even God was surprised. He's like, whoa, really? That's what you want? And what was it that Solomon chose? Do you guys remember? Well, that's why he's called the wise King Solomon. Our opening text tells us these beautiful words in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29. And God gave Solomon, in God, uh, 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29, and God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and the largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. So what did God give King Solomon? He gave him wisdom. He gave him understanding. And he gave him a, a large heart as much as the sand on the seashore. I love that description, right? It's like, wow, you have such a big heart that it's like all the sand on the seashore. But my question this morning is, why did Solomon ask for wisdom? What was the purpose of asking for this? The reason that King Solomon asked for this out of everything in the world was that he felt that he needed help in his job. Have you ever felt like that? Like you start a job and you're, you know, you did well during the interview, but you know that you're not really prepared for the job? There's some people who do really good at interviews, but they're not really qualified for the job. I think that maybe every nurse that begins feels this way. They've gone through school for, for four years, but when they get on the job, they feel completely overwhelmed. They feel like they don't know anything, and all the tests that they pass mean nothing when they have patients in front of them. Well, this is how King Solomon felt. He was king of millions of people. And he was responsible for governing and deciding to judge people. And he just felt so out of place. I think we could relate to this because I've said some prayers as a pastor. Lord, help me. Who am I to pastor this people? I've said prayers when I was a nurse. Lord, help me. How can I be a good nurse? And I remember one year they actually asked me to be a teacher in an academy. I prayed that prayer like every day because I'm a terrible teacher for, you know, in an academic setting. So King Solomon said, please help because I need your wisdom to judge people. Have you ever had that responsibility of judging people? Not like, I'm judgmental, I don't like how you look, or I don't like your attitude. No, I'm talking about the authority to say, you're right, and you're wrong, and maybe even decide to punish people based on that authority. Well, the Bible tells us that this was the desire of King Solomon. He was like, help, I'm Treading water here. I'm so underqualified. You, you're going to give me every, anything I want? I don't care about money. I don't care about cars. I don't care about fame. I need wisdom to judge your people. 
And that's what 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7 to 9 tells us. The Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7, Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child and do not know how to go out or to come in. Now, was King Solomon an actual child when he was made king? No, he was an adult, but that was his way of expressing it. Like, I'm just like a little kid here. I don't know what I'm doing. The next verse continues and says, And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, and a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. And he continues in the following verse, Therefore, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? You know, King Solomon was asking for help. But he should have learned from example. Who was the father of King Solomon? It was David, right? Now, the best way for you to learn is to have a mentor or on-job training. That's usually the best way to learn. I remember my, when I was a young man, I decided that I wanted to learn construction from my father because he was doing good, he was making money, and I thought this was a good skill to learn. And so I remember that there was a summer that I went to intern under him. But my dad didn't get the memo that I was supposed to learn how to do construction because instead of teaching me the skilled jobs, he would just tell me, all right, move these rocks over here, dig a hole, um, move the cement bags over there. And so after a whole summer, I learned absolutely nothing except how to move things and dig holes. And I always tell my dad, like, I want to be the one who knows how to smooth the cement or measure things. And he said, no, 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 you're too young for that. We need mentoring. We need help from the, the generation ahead of us to know how to do things. How many of you have had a mentor in your life that has shown you something, that has led you to where you are, has helped you in your journey? Anybody have a mentor like that in their life? All right, you see some of these young people, they don't raise their hands. They need mentors. We all need mentors. And the mentor of King Solomon should have been King David. But King David had kind of... He had kind of given up his duties. He has kind of neglected his duties as a judge of the people. In fact, it got so bad that Absalom, another king, another uh, son of David, decided to overthrow his father because he wasn't judging the people. We read that in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 15. Verse 2 to 4, David should have been judging the people. He should have been mentoring Solomon, but he was doing such a bad job that another son decided to overthrow him. And listen how he did it. It said, now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gates. So it was that whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision, that Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is a good and right, but there's no deputy of the king to hear you. Next verse. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that I were made 
In other words, he was saying, oh, that I were be made king in the land. And everyone who has any complaint or suit would come to me, and I would give him justice. Uh, that's a good way to win the hearts of people, right? Like no matter what problem you have with your neighbor or another person, they're like, you know what, I think you have a good case. In fact, if I was judge, I would judge for you, and you would win the case. And not only was he handsome, not only was he, you know, rich, but he was someone who cared about my problems. So David wasn't doing his job, and his son was trying to overthrow him by becoming judge. So David never mentored his sons on how to be a judge. In fact, when King David was an old man, he made King Solomon, his son, to rule instead of his place. And when he gave him the charge to be king, he told them that part of his responsibility was to judge the people. And by the way, there are some really hard cases that I never wanted to deal with. So can you take care of those right away? Imagine you step into a job for the first time and the predecessor has messed things up terribly. And he's like, by the way, I was too scared to deal with these problems. Can you go ahead and, and take care of that? I remember when I first became pastor, my very first church, that I wanted to meet with the pastor to talk about the church and say, you know, where are the families that need help? Who should I be praying for? Who should I be visiting the most? And he didn't want to meet with me for some reason. And finally, the day came, my first day at the church, and there was a previous pastor, and all he did was give me the keys to the church and said, good luck. <laughs> and I was just like... And there were so many things that came up in those first couple of months, and I would scratch my head and say, why didn't the previous pastor take care of this, right? Why didn't someone before take care of this? Well, that's what David did. He's like, Absalom, I mean, Solomon, you have the job. By the way, there's some problem issues you need to take care of. We find one in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 5 to 6. It says there in First Kings chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. Moreover, you know that also what Joab, I'm going to say, just did to me. Joab was the commander of David's army. So he was the one that was fighting the wars on behalf of David. While David was hanging out with Bathsheba, sleeping with women who were not his wife, Joab was out there with the men fighting. But Joab did something bad. The Bible tells us that he killed another man in cold blood. And so, here, he says, in the middle of the verse, And he shed the blood of war in peacetime, and put blood of war on his belt that was around his waist, and on his sandals that were on his feet. Therefore, do according to your wisdom, and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in, in peace. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Here's David, who's been king for decades, and he's too scared to confront the commander of his army. So what is he going to do? He's going to give it to his, his son to take care of. Is that, is that nice or is that not nice? That's messed up, right? Who would do that? So that's why Solomon comes to the throne and he's just like, I need help. <laughs> like, I'm in a terrible position here. Like, God, you're going to give me anything I want? Forget about riches. Forget about that, you know, that girl I've been you know, looking at for a while to be my wife, forget about chariots and horses and lands. I need wisdom to be able to judge according to what is right and what is wrong. Very simple prayer. 
I hope that you guys have the same attitude, right? That when you find yourself in, in difficult situations, when you find yourself not qualified, when you find yourself that I'm going to fail, that instead of getting desperate, instead of getting depressed, instead of just trying to pretend like you can do it, that you would humble yourself, go to God and say, I need your help. We struggle with that, don't we? We struggle asking help from other people, and we definitely struggle asking help from, from God. In fact, sometimes we only ask help from God when we're already, you know, drowning. We're like, help, help. And he's just like, I've been here the whole time. Why didn't you ask for help at the very beginning? So Solomon did. At the very beginning, he asked God for, for wisdom. And what did God do? The Bible tells us that King Solomon said a question that needs to be answered in 1 King chapter 3, verse 9. 1 Kings 3, verse 9, the last sentence says, For who is able to judge this great people of yours? What is the answer to that question? Who is able to judge this great people of yours? The answer is, not you, Solomon, (laughs) and not any man. Only God could truly judge the people. So what did God have to give Solomon in order that he may judge the people right. Not just a quality called wisdom. Not just a a tool called wisdom. You see, God had to give Solomon of himself in order to judge the people. And that's why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, it says, to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, what God gave Solomon was not just a quality or a characteristic. He gave him the wisdom of God. And according to this Bible verse, what is the wisdom of God? Jesus Christ. God came into his heart. And every right judgment that Solomon did was God giving his judgments through Through Solomon. Isn't it great to know that God could work through us? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful to know if we open our hearts that God will speak through us, that God will act through us, that God will give us the wisdom to make the right decisions and do the right things? I mean, how many of us have made so many mistakes that we say, wow, why did I do that? Because maybe we're not letting God lead in our life. And so the Bible tells us that's why Solomon became the wisest man in the world, because wisdom, Jesus, dwelt in him. And so Solomon, in essence, became a type or a representation of that great judge who's not just going to judge the country called Israel, but that great judge that is wisdom, not that has wisdom, but that is wisdom that shall judge the whole world. And who is that judge? That judge is our brother. That judge is our sacrifice. That judge is our rock. That judge is our shadow that covers us. That judge is our water, our bread. The Bible says in John chapter 5, verse 22, and then 27, for the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to who? To the Son. 
And verse 27 says, and he has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of, of man. So when we see the judgments of Solomon, what the Bible's really trying to teach us is, I want you to get a little picture of the judgments of Jesus Christ. So when we see Solomon in action, in essence, we're seeing Jesus in action as to how he will judge the world. So you want to see Solomon in action? Yes or no? I do. I'm excited to learn more about God's judgments. And the most famous story of Solomon's wisdom, the most famous story, the one we, we practically all know, is found in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 16 to 23. The story of the two mothers. Do you remember? First yes. Kings chapter 3, verse 16 to 23. We're going to read from verses 16 to 23, and then we're going to comment on this story. Let us begin. Now, I want you to imagine this. Imagine you are an observer in this scene. Now, two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. Remember, we're learning about Jesus along the way, right? Who came before the king? Two prostitutes. What does that tell you about Jesus? It doesn't matter how low you have gone in life. It doesn't matter what you have done that is so bad. He will always accept you into his, his presence. The king will never say, uh-uh, you don't qualify to enter my throne room. He accepts you all in his presence. And one woman said, oh, my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house. And I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day. After I had given birth, that this woman also gave birth. And we were together, and no one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night, and she took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, No, but the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, No, but the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. And the king said, the one says, this is my son who lives, and your son is a dead one. And the other one says, no, but your son is a dead one, and my son is the living one. What a difficult case, right? What a difficult case. I mean, I have struggles even with, with little kids. <laughs> you know, when little kids come and says, no, she did it. No, he did it. It's like, what do you do? Like, who do you believe, right? It's like, oh, man, who's, who's lying? Who's telling the truth? And, and that's just for something simple. So I can imagine that this case started probably at the bottom of the judicial system, and no judge could figure it out. So it went all the way to the, the king. But what a terrible story. What a tragic story, right? It still happens today. I mean, terrible things like this are still happening. There was a recent story in Chicago that this just happened that a woman who, was an, who lost a son who died pretended that she was pregnant 
and she connected with other moms that were pregnant and she focused on one mother and ended up murdering her and taking her child. And, and the police came to see her and there she had the child of the woman that she murdered. Oh, this is my child. This is my kid. I mean, terrible things like this happen all over the world. And it happened in, in the time of King David. And, and what do you do? What do you say? How do you resolve this? Well, you need the wisdom of, of God. Now, I don't know what happened that night, but I asked myself, what would lead her to steal another child from a mother's arms and claim it as her own? You know, what induced her when she woke up in the middle of the night and she found her, her child dead, and instead of just mourning it and crying it and letting everybody know what happened, that she decided to creep over with her dead child to her companion's bed and somehow switch it. I mean, who would do something so strange? What, I think, what were her motives? Was she, was she ashamed for what she had done? Maybe she didn't want the neighbors knowing, the other women knowing that she was so clumsy that she killed her own child. Was it jealousy that her child was dead and her companion's child was not? I, I don't know. It could have been a lot of things, but, you know, sometimes the most simple answer is probably the truest answer, that she didn't think about it. She just acted without thinking of the consequences. Maybe she just simply thought that the other mother would never notice that she had exchanged the children. And so... She switched the babies, got the other woman's baby, and went to sleep. But when the true mother woke up, and she went to nurse her child and discovered it was dead, I imagine the true mother must have let out a scream. And as the sun came up, she was mourning this child, holding it. But as she looked upon the face of that child, she noticed it wasn't hers. Now, before I had children, I used to wonder, how can you tell newborn babies apart? I mean, really. I mean, have you seen newborn babies, especially if they're all the same race? They're all Jewish here, right? You go to the hospital, they all look the same. You don't know who's who. That's why they have to put, you know, these bracelets in their names so you don't confuse them. But it wasn't until my wife gave birth, and maybe you other mothers could understand, how a mother could know the difference between her newborn and the newborn of someone else. Because when a mother receives her child, she looks at that child, and she, she looks at every curve in the face. She looks at every line of the nose. She sees the size of the eyes. She sees how, how the chin comes out. She sees that plays with the ears. She plays with the fingers. And, and, and in that, it's almost like a picture is taken of her mind of every curve an inch of her beautiful child. And so even though newborn babies look alike, I think most mothers could say that I know what my child looks like because I have stared in love at that beautiful face. So when she stared at that baby, she said, that's not mine, and she must have gotten up in shock and ran over to her companion and said, something's wrong, this baby's dead and it's not mine. But as she looked upon her companion, she noticed her baby was in her arms. I don't know what happened next. It must have been a terrible scene. Screaming and shouting accusations. The neighbors probably heard and they come in and it simply was, no, it's mine. No, it's mine. But you know possession is 
nine-tenth of the law, right? I mean, if it's in your arms, it's yours. But that true mother wouldn't let it go. She probably screamed and shouted, and it made such a case that they said, all right, let's take it to the judges. But as they took it to the judges, no one could really say who was the true mother and who was the false mother. The false mother probably thought that no one would notice, but when the mother noticed, she had to tell a lie to the neighbor. And when the neighbor took it to the judge, she had to tell a Another lie to the judge, and to the next judge, and to the next judge. Maybe the false mother never thought that it would get this big, that she would end up in the presence of the king himself. But you know what the proverb says. If we tell one lie, we must tell 20 more to bury it. And so she found herself in this terrible position of just wanting to have a child and thinking that no one would notice, but now she had to take her lie to the very end. And there she found herself in the presence of the king. She probably regretted that she had even done it in the first place, but she found no way out because now she was not just a clumsy mother who had killed her child. Now she'd be a liar and a thief. And she couldn't let that shame come upon her. So she stood in the presence of the king, wondering, how am I going to get out of this mess? How is this going to be resolved? If there only was an honorable way out of this situation, I would take it right away. And all of a sudden, it seemed that a way out of her lie was presented. When the king said these words in 1 Kings chapter 3, Verse 24 to 26. And the king said in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 24 to 26, Bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give one half to one mother, and give the other half to the other. The false mother at this point, thinking that this was the way out of her conundrum and thinking, wow, this king is the wisest king in the world, so I should agree with him as soon as possible because not only am I agreeing with the king, but this is also the way out of my lie that has been building up way beyond what I thought it would be. And so the Bible tells us that the true mother, when she heard these words, said in verse 26, then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill it. But the false mother said, Let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. Divide him. She thought that these words were the words that would get her out of her lie, her conundrum that she had built for herself. But no sooner had the words left her mouth that she understood that her own words had condemned her. Because the contrast was so stark between a mother who said, I would rather this child go with a false mother than die, just let the child die, compared to the false mother who said, well, that will solve my problems. Just kill the child. And the child's death will cover all my sins. And so the wise king, in the next verse, 27, 
The king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him, because she is the mother. She is the, the mother. Now, what's interesting about this story to me and what it teaches me about God, Jesus, our judge, is that this story is not about mothers. This story is not even about lies. This story is not about stealing. Do you know what this story is truly about? This story is truly about the word of the king and the word of God. Because the king said divided. What did the king say? Divided. And everybody thought that those words were meant to divide the child in half. But the king never had any intentions of killing that baby. The reason he uttered those words was not to cut the babies in half, but to cut the mothers in half. To reveal truly what was in their hearts. Is there a Bible verse that says that? We find that in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God, for the what? For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirits and joints and marrow and discerner of the thoughts and intents of the, of the heart. The king never meant to cut a child in half. He meant to cut the women open and reveal truly what was in their hearts. And the word truly did reveal a mother who had great love for a child and one who could care less. What does this tell us about our judge? What does this tell us about Jesus Christ? What it tells me is very simple. That God has given us the Bible. God has given us the word to be able to expose us and show us who we truly are. Because to others, we might be able to fool them. To others, we might be able to put on a show. To others, we might be able to hide behind a mask. But God says, no, no, my word cuts. Because how you react to his word is what shows what your character is. And I believe that's why this story is in the Bible, because it reveals the character of the women by the word of the king. And the king's word is still revealing characters today. The greatest sermon that Jesus ever told was the Sermon on the Mount. Do you guys remember that? Blessed are the... Blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers. But what many of you have forgotten is that Jesus ended his great sermon with an appeal, with a conclusion to action. And he told a story to end that great sermon. And this was a story. The wise man built his house upon the... the and then it goes, the foolish man built his house upon the... How many of you sang that song growing up? Anybody? Wonderful. Do you ever remember what was the point of that song anyway? It was just like, I'm not sure. You should build your rock, your house on a rock, not sand. Why do we even sing that in church? But when you go to the story, you find out that Jesus gives application. He says, 
those who hear my word and do it are the wise men who build their house on the rock. But those who hear my word and do nothing with it are like the foolish men who build his house on the, on the sand. And the rains came down and the floods came up. And what happened to that house built on the sand? It all came tumbling down and all the kids fall on the ground, right? What is Jesus trying to tell us? What is Jesus trying to tell us? Jesus is trying to tell us that my word is given to you so that you may react in obedience. And if you react in obedience, your spiritual house will be firm. So when the storms of life come, when you lose your job, when you lose that person you love, when you find yourself tempted, when you find yourself depressed or anxious, and you have these storms coming, you can be sure that your relationship with God, your spiritual house will not come tumbling down because you have heard his word and not reacted like the false mother, but reacted positively like the true mother. And so, what word has God shared with you today? What word has God shared with you last week? What thing do you know that God is speaking to you, but you're just kind of holding it off? Like, you know, I'll come to church, I'll, I'll sing some hymns, but I'm not ready to act on that word. I'm not ready to act on what I heard that sermon a week ago, or what I heard in my devotional time with you. I'm not ready to act. I'm just ready to listen, but not do anything. God says, don't be, don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. Recently, there was a Seventh-day Adventist who was on death row. Many of you might have heard this story. He was uh, convicted of murdering his, his wife and was given the death penalty. But while he was in jail, he became a, a Seventh-day Adventist. And he completely transformed his life in jail. He started giving Bible studies. He started preaching. And in fact, he became the most prolific evangelist in the whole prison system. He brought many people to Christ. He had such a dramatic change in his life that when it came time for him to die, the petitions came pouring in. Please, let him live. Please pardon him. The governor received a call from Ted Wilson of our general conference of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Received calls from pastors and church members all over. The family of his wife had even forgiven him because they had seen the great change in his life. But a couple, a couple days ago, they put a needle in his arm. And they put in chemicals that forever took his life. Except that the Bible teaches us that judges on earth make mistakes sometimes. The Bible teaches us that 
people change by the power of God. And I think that man still has a judge who will look at him differently. And if he can be judged by God gracefully and mercifully, and by God's grace, he might be saved still. Don't you also have hope? Don't you also have an opportunity? Don't you also have the ability to be saved before a judge who loves you and cares for you? So, as you leave University Seventh-day Adventist Church today, I just want to remind you that God speaks to all of us. And my hope is that his words will lead you to change more and more in his image. Because Jesus Christ is coming soon. And I'm glad that he's our judge and no one else is our judge. Because he loves you and he cares for you and he wants you to be with him forever. And so I want to ask, ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Because lots of us come to church with burdens. Lots of us come to church with mistakes that we have made yesterday, a year ago, five years ago. It might have been a word we said. It might have been an act that we have done. Maybe something we should have done, but we didn't. And today, Jesus Christ is here, your lamb and your sacrifice. And he wants you to give all those sins, all those mistakes to him. And so I want to ask this morning, is there someone here who is not before King Solomon, but is before the King Jesus, our gracious judge who wants to forgive you, who has given his life for you, and today you're thinking of something that has been on your heart, something that has burned in you, something that has troubled you that you have done or not done, and you want to ask God for forgiveness. You want to come back to him. Would you raise your hand this morning and say, Lord Jesus, it's me. It's me that needs your grace and forgiveness. I trust your judgments. And I want to ask for help. I want to ask for your forgiveness. If that's in your heart today, I can't read your heart, but God can. Would you raise your hand and say, Father, through Jesus Christ, please forgive me. I want to accept his blood in my heart. This is your chance to receive forgiveness from your Lord Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Father, you know your people here. You know what's in their hearts and minds. And I'm so grateful, Lord, that you are wisdom personified, that you are the one who will judge your people with love and grace. You have given us your word. Help us to leave this church not just happy to have heard the word, but excited to go do your word and that it may change our characters. We thank you for the forgiveness that you have given us. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen and amen and amen.